0: That's where we're picking up, he's there, it's crucifixion time, he probably at this time is beginning to grasp for air, uh, but he's still alive, he hasn't expired yet, and uh, with that as the context, would you take a look at chapter 23, verse 35, chapter 23, verse 35, see what it says, and the people, primarily Jewish people would be my guess, it's Jerusalem, Uh, So primarily Jewish people, the people stood by looking on. Now this was common Roman practice. Crucifixion was done in public areas on purpose. It was not made private at all. It was on display. Can you suggest reasons why the Romans wanted crucifixion to be in public view? What do you think, Tom? Tom? Yeah, definitely. Humiliation for sure. And it sort of worked in this case, and I, I don't want to be unduly graphic, but the victims were stripped naked. There were no loincloths or anything like that. So the victim was quite humiliated. And some, Yes, sir? You you are right. You are absolutely right. It was meant as a deterrent. If you commit an act of sedition against Rome and the emperor, this will be your fate. You are correct. And remember, the Jewish religious leaders knew Pilate would be absolutely unconcerned with their internal religious fight, so they suggested he claimed to be king in contradistinction from Caesar, so, this became a political crime, and as a deterrent to it, Rome said, Defy Rome, and this will be your fate. Yes, ma'am. No, no, it was, and that is an excellent point. We're going to see their robbers in a specific kind of, of robbers. They probably committed armed robbery and murder. So, for offenses like that as well, They might have killed Roman citizens. That, too, was an assault against Rome. Say again. Now, that's a good point. That that is exactly right. Armed and a dangerous threat to Rome, and thus they won the right of being crucified, so to speak. Good thoughts. So this is the context. The people are standing by, looking on. While this is happening, even the rulers were sneering it is probably the Jewish religious rulers we're thinking about here. We'll get to Romans in a second. But these are probably Sanhedrin members. Remember, about 70 of them. They voted unanimously with an exception. We'll get to that. Not today, but uh, next week perhaps. They voted to uh, send this Jesus to Pilate so that he could be condemned and Executed. So the Jewish religious leaders at this point are sneering at him. In essence, they're having a conversation with themselves, specifically saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ, meaning Messiah, or anointed one, if this is the anointed one of God, his chosen one. You see, here's what the implication of their... Taunt was. It cannot be that this one would have God's favor because of the method uh, of death because Torah, Torah are the first five books of the Bible, the holiest part of the Bible to Jews because Moses gave it. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says... Cursed is the one who dies in this manner. This is not the form of death you want. This would really indicate divine disfavor. In keeping with this, they say there's no way this one could be Messiah, anointed and chosen one of God. In fact, he bears evidence of having been rejected by God to die in such fashion. Uh, In keeping with this, Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, and now he's invoking this passage that I mentioned to you from Deuteronomy, saying, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the Jewish religious leadership are saying, absolutely no way this is Messiah who has God's favor. Look at the manner of his death. He's cursed. They're sort of right. He became a curse, however, for us. He bore the curse of the law. Now, you might say, in what sense is the law of God, which is a reflection of his moral character, how could we in any way say it's a curse? It is not a curse in and of itself. It becomes a curse if you think by it you will win God's favor. You won't. All that the law does is define the fact that we fall really, really far short of God's standard. That's the purpose of the law. It's like a mirror. It can't redeem. It can't deliver. Nothing wrong with the law. Plenty wrong with us. It reveals that we have a nature, an inclination to be unlawful. In that sense, it's quite a burden. It's a curse upon us. If all you have is the law and no one to fulfill it for you, you're in a heap of trouble. So in a sense, Jesus was cursed. He bore the curse of the law on the cross in our place. So the Jewish religious leaders, they really, really are missing the means by which God intends to save. They don't understand that he intends to save through his own death. And so this taunt uh You save others, let him save himself. By the way, you're going to see that taunt repeated two more times from entirely different people groups. First, upper crust Jewish religious leadership, save yourself. In other words, come down from the cross. Avoid the cross. Um, The one behind it is Satan. This is the number one direction of satanic temptation for the Lord. If he can come into his kingdom without the cross, please tell me where you and I would be. If he, in fact, succumbed to the temptation, the taunt, and chose to save himself, because he, he could have. He could have come down from the cross. Nails did not hold him there. I've got to tell you that. Nails did not hold him there. If he chose to save himself, then who was your savior? Who was mine? Then we're still under the curse of the law, and we can't make it. We fall short of the glory of God. So do you remember when Satan during one of the temptations took the Lord to the pinnacle of the temple and said jump down? What was that all about? Malachi said it's a sign of Messiah's appearance. When Messiah comes, he's going to suddenly appear in the temple. So the Jewish people of the day thought in some supernatural Rather dramatic way, Messiah is going to come from the sky suddenly appear at the temple precincts. So Satan is saying, hey, listen, you can come into your kingdom now, just jump down. After all, doesn't it say your father is going to give his angels charge concerning you? You won't even get hurt. You'll be able to demonstrate your Messiahship and that cross stuff. You won't have to go through it. That's the direction of satanic temptation. For the Lord. And so the Jewish religious leaders are playing right into the hands of the evil one. They don't even know it. Save yourself is what they say. And you're going to see this, as I say, repeated about two more times in, in the text. So now it says verse 36, the soldiers. So verse 35, a Jewish crowd and Jewish religious leadership. But now in verse 36, Gentile, Roman military men, the soldiers also mocked him. Coming up to him, offering him sour wine. It was a kind of a wine vinegar, which was cheap and thus readily available to slaves, uh, laborers, and military people. You could get high on it rather inexpensively. It was in plentiful supply to Roman soldiers. So they offer some to the Lord. Why? Why do you think they offered it? What did you say, Maury? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. <laughs> well said. They wanted to, to sort of anesthetize his pain. Was it a humanitarian thing on their part? Were they sorry? Then why did they want to diminish the pain? Well, no, they liked the screaming, actually. The Romans had this down, remember, to a science. Uh, crucifixion, Uh, they wanted to elongate the suffering of the one on the cross. Typically, one crucified could hang up there for two to three days. That was not the case with the Lord. We'll see the timing after a while. But it wasn't the humanitarian effort. They wanted to sort of um, diminish his pain so as to elongate, ultimately, his time on the cross. This is just a deal. It became amusement. It became fun. It became almost a competition to keep the victim alive as long as possible before he dies a miserable death. That's sort of what was going on. Now the the Gospels tell us the Lord refused it. In, In fact, let me read to you Mark chapter 15, verse 23. So this is Mark's parallel account. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He did not take it. He refused the drink. Why? To demonstrate to us that on the cross, his pain in our place was alleviated by nothing. Undiminished agony. What does that prove? Well, it proves what it takes to die for sin, I'll tell you that. It proves what it takes to pay the debt owed God when we break his law, so it proves the holiness of God, but it also proves his undiminished, intense love for us. It's extraordinary. Undiminished, unalleviated pain in your place and mine. He showed us he is willing to suffer absolutely whatever it would take to win us to himself, now freed from sin and adopted into his family. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So he refused the drink so as to demonstrate undiminished suffering. And you look at all this and you say, wait, just, this is just crazy. Look at all that's going on. The Jews are calling the shots. The Romans are calling the shots. Look what they're doing to him. That's not true. You realize that every aspect of uh, this was predicted, and prophesied, and foretold centuries before. You have to realize that even now at the cross, even on the cross, the suffering and dying one is fully in control. He's he's divine. He is God. Nothing is being done to him that he didn't announce beforehand and permit, which even accentuates the extent of his love and commitment to us. It wasn't on impulse. He didn't wake up one day and say, I feel good today. I feel good about you. No, no, no. He knew his lot in life would be born to die. He saw it coming because the scriptures that spoke about it, those are his words. So, for instance, let me just read you a smattering of phrases from one psalm, Psalm 22. Listen. But I am a worm. David wrote it, but the ultimate fulfillment is in David's greater king. King Jesus, I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of man and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. It's just what's happening. They separate with the lip, they wag the head saying, "Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver you, let him rescue him, because he delights in him." I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. That's intense thirst. That is one of the symptoms. That's what happens to one being crucified, intense thirst. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. There's the crowd all around, gaping, gawking, sneering, mocking. They pierced my hands and feet. That's rather remarkable because it was... uh, announced at a time when death by crucifixion was not yet even in existence. The piercing of one's hands and feet so as to be impaled on a tree, a cross, <laughs> was a Persian invention perfected by Rome, but it was yet not yet even used as a form of capital punishment, but Psalm 22 foreshadows it before it even was. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is exactly what the Romans did. Brother Chuck taught us about it last week. For my garments they cast lots. Hundreds of years before the actual reality, the prophecy was made. God is in control. Psalm 69, another psalm of David, also I think alluded to in the crucifixion account. Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, hundreds of years later, the fulfillment in Luke 23. It says a lot. At the least, it says God is enthroned, He reigns and is sovereign even from the cross. It also, as a collateral application shows us how Old and New Testament are connected in the common theme of the person of Jesus Christ. Old Testament fulfillment, uh, prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. People see um, a disjointed relationship between the two testaments. No, Christ is the key to unlock it. Old Testament looks forward to him. New Testament looks back to him. He's the centerpiece. If you use him as the interpretive key for Old and New Testament, look for him in both Uh, then you will see that they are both connected together. It shows the uh, unity of the Testaments because they're authored by the same one, Almighty God. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. So even on the cross, the Lord Jesus is really the sovereign one. Verse 37, the Roman soldiers are saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save your self. So there you have it again, the same taunt a second time, but from an entirely different group. First, it's the upper crust, elite, well-educated, sophisticated Jewish religious leaders. Now, it's grunts. It's Roman soldiers. It's people who who are used to seeing people die. They get their hands dirty. They're used to cheap drink. That's who's doing the same thing. You have totally disparate groups. They would have nothing in common. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are educated, some are not, some are upper crust, some are common people. These groups would never have anything in common, except the author of the taunt is the same, Satan. If he could convince Jesus not to die on the cross, then you tell me where you and I would be. I'll tell you one thing, we would be lost, and the Lord Jesus would not have devoted followers and worshipers. So here you have the taunt again. If you're this, then save yourself. It's very ironic, strange to consider uh, that if the Lord did this, the very people calling for it, the Jews, the Gentiles, would have no hope. Isn't that something how they're calling for their own damnation? The Jewish religious leaders, save yourself, don't worry about saving us. The Roman soldiers, save yourself. If you're so hot, don't worry about saving us. If he said, okay, they would have called upon him to do something that would have resulted in their eternal damnation. We don't even know what we're asking for, do we? But he stayed on the cross. The nails did not keep him there. His love for lost people like you and I, like those Jews and those Romans, that's what kept him on the cross. So verse 38, there was also an inscription above him. This is not unusual. The Romans did this. It was a a short epithet describing the crime, uh, justifying this person's execution. It was called the titulus, a Latin term, titulus. And we know specifically what was on this one because it was mandated to read this way by Pilate. It says, this is the king of the Jews. That's what it read. Pilate said, put this, this is his crime. You say, how's that a crime? It was a political assault on the king of Rome, Caesar. That's the deal. This is the king of the Jews. You can't have two kings. Caesar is king. Not this Yeshua. Not this renegade rabbi. Not this carpenter's son. Not this guy from dinky Nazareth. Are you kidding me? So they labeled it king of the Jews. And we're told in John chapter 19, verse 20, this. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, Jerusalem, and it was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. Do you have any thoughts as to why it was written in three languages? Hebrew, Latin, Greek. There were tons of people from all over the place. There's no question. It's Passover. Uh, it's Passover. And there would have been, for sure, Jews from all over the world, pilgrim feast, and plenty of other people too. No question about that. Tons of people. Yes. Now, Tom, here's the deal: you cannot answer a question with a question. <laughs> Do you understand this? I'll ask the questions. No, I'm again. <laughs> Um, and Tom is on to it. He's right. Latin was, um, you know, it was the language of the upper cross, the intelligentsia, the academicians. It still is today, right? Latin. When I mean, you're going through a PhD program, they're going to make you study Latin. It's the way it is. It's not the stuff that average one of us needs to know. This is, you know, this is hot shots. Ivory Tower people. Latin. Latin. Sophisticated academicians. Latin. Greek. It was called Koine Greek, which simply meant common, not sophisticated Greek. There's another brand of Greek. You write poetry in it and stuff. Koine Greek was the language of the, per, the country person, the, just the normal, you know, blue collar. Fisherman from Galilee <laughs> spoke, um, spoke Koine Greek, and it was a very, very widespread language, and it was the language of the Roman Empire. Everybody spoke it. Slaves spoke it, masters spoke spoke it, all the rest. And and then Hebrew, Jews. So 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 you have Greek speaking Jews and Gentiles, you got Hebrew speaking Jews, you got Latin. Here's the deal. The ramifications of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that which he was accused of are universal. I mean he's being executed for a crime which is essentially true. It is who he who he is. He's king of the Jews. And the ramification is really, really great. So regardless of your strata in society, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, uh, wealthy or not, this this is of great universal significance what we're reading about. The death of the one who came to be king of the Jews. By the way, That he is king of the Jews doesn't mean he can't be the king of other people as well. He started out as king of the Jews, using them as a vehicle of his grace. The Jews, entrusted with much privilege, demonstrate the grace of God. But he didn't want his grace to stop with the Jews. He actually wanted to go from them to the world. My people failed. They My people have turned their backs on their own Messiah, but that didn't limit him. Therefore, the gospel has gone forth with great intensity to non-Jews, but that doesn't mean he ceases to be king of the Jews. In fact, Romans 11 says, note the gospel went to Gentiles so as to make the Jews jealous. So he's not through with them. Be careful. He died under the accusation of being king of the Jews, now you have the world who would like to erase that, by the way, and suggest that he's through with the Jews. It's happening politically, theologically, and militarily as well. This is a most interesting day. Most interesting day. So uh, uh, he's impaled on a cross, and this is the charge. He's king of the Jews. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, "Uh, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is the third time same taunt. Think of the disparate groups, Jewish religious leaders, Roman soldiers, and now a condemned criminal. Even he hurls this abuse, this taunt against the Lord. Folks, I got to tell you something. There's nobody who has been more scorned and unjustly treated and verbally abused and dismissed and degraded, nobody but the Son of God. Think about it. It could help you, it could help me, not to be so thin-skinned when someone steps on your toes. This is the day of, I have my rights, don't offend me, be careful what you say. And we ought to. We ought to treat each other with dignity. I understand that. But we're going to slip. So what? Look what he endured. You talk about an offense. You talk about a verbal insult, for crying out loud. The least likely, the most innocent one suffered the greatest abuse. We could suffer a little injustice, injustice. It wouldn't hurt, right? Even here. Okay. So somebody, a fellow Christian, offends you. It's not enough reason to stay away. Come on. You talk about the offended one. Oh my goodness. What wounds we suffer really pale in comparison to the insult and mockery and taunts he was suffering. So again, Satan is behind this. You get three different people groups, but they're hurling the same taunt. Save yourself. Save yourself. Even a even a criminal the criminal says, if you if you're the savior, save yourself. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, us too. Save us too. That's what he says. The irony here is that's the very thing the Lord is willing and able to do. That's what he came to do, to save. But there's a, a prerequisite. The one needing saving has to ask for it, <laughs> has to desire it. This one didn't, apparently. But it appears that another, a very unlikely one, did have a desire to receive what this Jesus was willing to offer. So look at it, verse 40. But the other, so now we get the impression there are two criminals there. Can you imagine this? This conversation is going on while they're impaled on a cross. The other answered and rebuking him, rebuking the other. So here, the Lord, you'll see in a second, the Lord is being uh, crucified in the middle. One of these robbers is on his right, one on the left. So if this one in verse 40 is rebuking the other, that means he has to call across the Lord, who's in the middle, right? He has to dialogue with the one on the other side of the Lord. One's on one side, one's on the other. This one yells to the other one, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He is just overwhelmed at this time that this close to death, this one shows no interest in repentance of any kind. He's not reckoning on his life after death situation whatsoever. Is absolutely unconcerned about his eternity and any accountability he might have to Almighty God subsequent to death. And he is saying, you're kidding me! You would think all this, which is justifiably your due, would have softened your heart. Instead, it is hardening it. You You are more scornful than ever before. Interesting. Now, Matthew 27, again, a parallel account, says this about this. In verse 38, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And then Matthew says in verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Matthew is telling us both of these guys hurled abuse upon the Lord. So you know what it appears happened? One of them changed his mind. They both started out in mockery and sneering. Something got hold of one of them. I don't know if it was the one on the right or the one on the left. We're not told. One of them saw, heard, I don't know. One of them was affected by nearness to this Jesus uh, to the extent that his heart is changing. He has a revised view of who this Jesus is so that he calls out to the other one and rebukes him for his mistreatment of Jesus, which leads to this question. How could it be that two people with equal access and nearness to the Savior would respond in such diametrically opposed ways? How could it be that the same Jesus would cause the heart of one to soften ultimately while the heart of the other was hardened? How could it be? Um, I don't know the answer. I suspect you don't either. Don't give one. (laughs) I'll tell you why. If you give one, it's going to be one or the other of these. It's going to be God elected one to salvation and condemned the other to damnation. Or you're going to say, no, that's not it. One chose to accept Christ and the other chose not to. You're both right, except you're both wrong if you don't harmonize, if you don't take into account both of what I just said. So here's the deal with salvation. On the divine side, you're darn tootin'. God saves those who are saved on the divine side. It's his doing. On the human side, you have to respond. Now, which is it? Is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? If you choose divine sovereignty, you're going to go around saying, I am a Calvinist. If you choose human responsibility, you're going to go around and saying, I am an Arminian named after a man named Jacob Arminius. And in the church, in Baptist churches today, we are now seeing splits and divisions over which of those schools of thoughts do you embrace? Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I'm asked that probably three times a week now, and I'll tell you my answer. Yeah, yes is a good (laughs) answer. I say, uh, I refuse to be identified with a labeled school of theology, both of which are just overlays on Scripture. Why don't you just discuss the, ma- the issue of salvation with me? Here's the matter of salvation. I don't know how it works, and I'm perfectly comfortable. I love what Paul said. How unsearchable, how unfathomable is the mind and wisdom of God, the images of a well, the bottom of which you can never get to. I am thrilled that my father is so wise and smart. He can harmonize these two things. I cannot. I am just thrilled that, sure, on the one side, he has to save people because we're dead apart from his work, spiritually dead. He has to open our eyes so that we could respond. On the other hand, I'm thrilled the scriptures speak just as much about the importance of responding to the gospel message. How do they work together? I don't know. Look, I don't know how in a military barracks, September 5th, 1973. I keep saying this because to me it was like yesterday. I don't know how after having heard the gospel, a few days before, but not for the first time. I mean, this is America. I know who Jesus is. I know who Billy Graham is. He's the guy I used to turn off as quick as I could when he was on TV. I know what the cross is all about. I know what church is. You mean, I mean, I'm not, I, this is America, right? We, you, people wear crosses and, you know, do Christmas stuff and all the rest. It's not like, oh, I never heard of Jesus. Come on. Why is it? On September 5th, 1973, why is it? I said, oh, God, you've got to forgive me. I have sinned. I owe you. I can't pay. I'm a lawbreaker. I don't have any excuses. I can't blame it on my parents, on my background, or anything. I break the law because I'm a lawbreaker. What am I going to do? I'm a mess. You made me. I live like you're not there. You've got to forgive me. I think it's possible because you went through hell so that I don't have to. Excuse me, but that's that's what I was saying at the time. So would you come into my life? I don't even know what I'm saying. That's what I remember saying. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't have all these fancy concepts. Would you just come into my life, forgive me, change me like crazy because I'm a mess? Boom, September 5th, 1973. Why? How? How? And why me and not the guy in the barracks room next to me? Well, if I opt to on the divine side of salvation, I say because I was elected to salvation and the other guy was not. If that's all I know, the divine side. Or if I opt only for the human side, I say because I was smart enough to choose Jesus and the guy next to me is stupid. I didn't do anything. So I'm 63 years old. I've been a Christian since 1973. I still don't know how I was saved. And I'm proud of it. And I said that one time, and some lady really freaked out. You're like a minister in the church. You're like a man of the cloth. You don't know how you got saved? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she misunderstood what I was saying. I don't understand the miracle of salvation. I don't understand. Listen, I was at lunch the other day with a man introduced to me by someone in this church. He does not know the Lord. And I went to lunch with him, and he allowed me to share my testimony. He didn't ask for testimony. He said, how does a Jewish guy like you end up in a church? That's what he said. So I just took that to be, I'm going for it. (laughs) So, and he was quite open. He was respectful. We actually have developed a friendship. We've gotten together since then. But at that point, what I was sharing evoked no response. I could get not even an argument. An argument is a good thing. That means a person's being stirred up. I got oh that's nice. I'm happy for you. <laughs> why why is I don't what is the now I'm not giving up. Please don't misunderstand. We pray and everything. But I'm just saying at that time I was persuaded in spite of, I think it was a very clear presentation of who Jesus is and what he came to do and, and how he, this man needed to accept him. It was just a blank. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not. God has to open his eyes for him to be saved. He has to accept Christ in order to be saved. Which is it? Don't get wrapped up in this. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of John Calvin. I am of Jacob Arminius. Why don't you just be of the God of the Bible and just say the mystery of salvation is so wondrous. You could try to plumb the depths of the wisdom of God and only scratch the surface. Why don't you resist the temptation to say I'm saved because I bring something to the table someone else doesn't you don't that's not the answer but the other problem one is arrogance but the a saved person versus an unsaved person but the other problem is because you can't I can't understand the fullness of salvation we refuse ourselves the joy of accepting this fact Jesus saved you He did. That's how you got saved. You should let that overwhelm you. Don't run to the question, yeah, but if he saved me, why not this one or that one? Stop for a second and just enjoy the fact. (laughs) You didn't get saved because you decided a certain day was a good day to be saved. You got saved because the Savior enabled you to see your need to be saved and him as Savior. Just rejoice in it. Yes, brother. Is it, uh, Romans 9 that talks about Pharaoh? Yes, that's the text, which seems to, impl- it doesn't seem, it clearly indicates God chooses who he will for what role in life he will. So on that basis, some s- strongly situated on the divine side would say, for instance, Pharaoh had no choice but to act out because he was elected to it. But you can go into the Exodus account, interestingly, and um, as many times as it says, um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it'll say, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's the perfect illustration of what I'm saying. Human responsibility, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Divine sovereignty, God hardened his heart. Now the question is, which came first? The answer is, I don't have any clue. And, and, you know, just the question, which came first, which came second, implies sequence that doesn't exist for God. Time is not a linear thing, today, tomorrow. He exists outside of time. And that's part of our problem. I'm locked into categories that God is freed up from. So I don't know which came first. Did God harden his heart, and as a result, Pharaoh hardened his? Or did Pharaoh harden his heart, and as a result, God hardened his? You see, I'm asking which came first, chicken or the egg? There is no chicken or egg for Almighty God. He exists out of time. He just gave us time to live in. It helps us out. That's all. Time is kind of a helpful deal, but he's not bound by it. Yes, Trish. Oh, okay, that's a good point. Yeah, that's, good point. <laughs> that's good. Thanks for listening, Trish. Yes, gotcha. Yeah that's a good point. It's more like God knew that he knew. Yes. He knew he, he's omniscient. He knows the future f- from the beginning. He saw that Pharaoh would make this choice. Some people call it judicial hardening. That's good. I really like that explanation. You know what I really enjoy though as I as I get older and walk the Lord more, I really love to say, "Oh God, I have no idea how all this works. I, I, I am just so delighted to be a kid and to just trust you. I'm so thrilled. I got enough <laughs> to know what's going on. I just don't, I am so thrilled that I can't make sense <laughs> of all of these things that are like no problem for you. Man, you must be like, really, the all-wise God. Why can't we just rest with that instead of forcing an explanation by embracing one school of thought uh, as a, uh, to the opposition to the other? And churches are splitting over this. That's the stupid thing about it, for crying out loud. Well, okay here. Uh, yes, Tom. Yeah, he's wonderful. I do, too. Yeah, Tom, that's the point. You make such a good point. Why split over something? Well, here's the deal. I think we're so proud, we we refuse to admit. We don't understand. So we're forcing a human explanation by choosing a school of thought. I, I had a young guy come up to me forgive me for my arrogance, a young whippersnapper who knows Zippo, he took two courses in seminary and he's ready to go for my theological throat and he wants me to tell him how many points of Calvinism of the five I'm into, John Calvin would have punched him in the face. You kidding me? Let alone. And I'm thinking, you don't even know what you're talking about. You heard some formularized kind of a deal, and you're trying to pin me on it so you can justify whether you're going to listen to me from now on or not. I've got to have the right number of five points of count. I said, if you want to discuss scripture with me, that's fine. But I am no worshiper of John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jacob Arminius, uh, John Morgan, or anything else. That's the deal. These are vehicles and vessels God uses by God. But you make recourse to the word of God. Not for some God. You know, Luther would freak out if he knew they would be Lutherans. <laughs> the reformers reformed us away from all this stuff to get back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And now we're building whole schools of thoughts that we divide. And Tom, in this day, when we Christians need each other more than ever, we're dividing like crazy. Are you kidding me? You're absolutely... Hey, listen, what is so hard to say, hey, I don't see it your way. I disagree. So what? Can't we still hang out? So what? He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the son shall not see life. That's how God divides humanity. I'm not sure we have permission to divide it further, especially in this day. Yeah, Trish. Sorry, no, no, um, go ahead. I had an interesting time in the, in the waiting room the doctor's office. Oh. There was Egyptian, Catholic, Egyptian y- Yes. Wow. Holy moly. Man, Trish. You didn't have to come to church today. You already went to mass. That was very cool. Holy moly. That was a wild doctor visit, huh? Very, very cool. I think we we need to do this more than ever. You know, it's light versus darkness. It's Satan versus Savior. He who has a son. Why can't we just say, I don't agree with what you're saying at all. But I agree with you. Why can't we be agreeable? Why can't we? Why? See, that's what I'm saying. We're a little too thin-skinned. You know what I mean? Look at the, look at the offense the Lord took. What's the, we shouldn't offend each other so quickly with our theology. These things are a little bigger than us. Now, look, there are certain fundamentals. You know, I don't have anything in common with you. If you minimize who Jesus said he was, what are we going to do? I don't have any fellowship with you if you think there's alternative roads to, to to God when Jesus said He's the only way. I don't have fellowship with you if you think the Bible is full of error and just contains truth. I don't have fellowship with you if you think universal everyone's going to be saved. You know whatever the deal is. I don't have fellowship with you if you if you uh, if you think you you know there is no heaven. No he- you know there's certain fundamental. The rest of the stuff you speak in tongues. I don't. You're wrong, but I can live with you. Maybe not the same neighborhood exactly. But. I mean, it's just stuff. I mean, what are you going to do? We're not going to get this all worked out. That doesn't mean you have to compromise your position. I study these issues like crazy. I just don't want to divide over them. That's all. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That is good. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. Well that is such a good call. Uh, um God never intended for us to understand him, at least this side of heaven, fully. How do you bow before someone who is your equal? We worship him because he can harmonize things w- we, we cannot harmonize. I love what you said. These things should lead us not to divide from one another but to worship Almighty God all, all, all the more. Look at how big he is. Look how great he is. That is such a good word. Thank you for for sharing that. Okay, so one guy, interesting, one guy was hardened. The other guy was softened by the same... Savior, the same message, the same access, Um, and you're going to see what happens in verse 41 next time uh, to the robber who uh, whose heart was changed. We'll we'll see about. I don't want to get into it now because it's like there's a whole lot of stuff, and we'll we'll be too late. So we have a few minutes. What do you want to do? You want to argue? Yeah. You know, I must tell you this. In my background, maybe it's a cultural deal. In, in my background, um, we, we can have like a family thing together and go at it. We don't hit each other or anything like that. But it's like hands are flying, you know, we, we just, we're not, we're not proper. We're not dignified. So it's like a motion in the air. Everyone's talking at exactly the same time. There's no such thing as one person talking. We don't pass food around the table like this. It's just, you know, there's like no rules. Just go, for it. it's just one of these deals. And at the end, we hug and kiss one another and get back together the next time. It's really interesting. One time I had a Gentile friend of mine visit uh, our home in New York many years ago and he's, and when all this family stuff was over, he said, Stuart, I'm exhausted. Do, do your family, do, do they usually hate each other like this? And, 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 uh, it was just a different culture. You know, I said, Oh no, man, that's just a, it's just a Semitic deal. I mean, we just, we don't get ulcers because we get it out. We, we, we give ulcers. <laughs> I mean, just, we just get it out. It's not right or wrong. It's just a deal. But, but we won't allow an issue to separate a family tie what about our family tie? Oh my goodness, Jesus died so that we would be saved from sin, yeah, but from the world into an ecclesia. Ecclesia out of Kaleo. He called us out of the world to what? A solitary existence? A cocoon? He called us out of the world into the ecclesia from which we get the word. Ecclesiastical Church He called us out of the world into See salvation is collective Not in the sense that a group gets saved I don't mean that An individual gets saved into a group Of those saved It's like a family deal So relations are hugely, hugely, hugely important It's not unhealthy For family members to fight and argue In fact it could be a good deal Get it out Keeps you from stabbing each other in the back For crying out loud It's not the big deal. The big deal is dividing over the wrong things, and the world is watching. Oh, my goodness. And They're not seeing too much different than the way people do relationships, you know, out there. Okay, so we're going to see the nature of what happened to the robber, Lord willing, next week. Verse 41 and on, and what happened to him. And what is paradise? Think about what is paradise, because the Lord promised him that. What is that? Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Boy, that seemed a little empty. How do we thank you? Words, Our words are not enough. Maybe we should be thinking about thanking you in the way we live, ways that are increasingly pleasing to you. What you've done is is overwhelming. Look, there's a million things, Lord, we don't understand. How could you be God? Then you become man. To what extent? I mean, you said you lay aside your divine prerogatives. How many? I mean, what? I don't, I don't, there's a million things I don't get, but I get you because you got me and we have your mind. We can understand things partially and that's enough. Your word says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may obey all the words of this law. You've told us enough to enter into submissive compliance with you, and you've made it clear you are categorically different, higher. You are the most high God. Thank you for our minds. We think it's good, but please forgive us if we think by mind power we can bring you down to a level of full comprehension, which makes you our peer instead of our God. We are so thrilled that we don't fully comprehend salvation and eternity and your redemptive plan. It is enough to know where the ecclesia, we've been called out, and in to a family of God because of what you've done, your death, your burial, your resurrection. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the hope of eternal life together because of what you procured for us on the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks.